This is recording number 10726 from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Palo, California. This is the third message in the Redirecting Your Future series by Randy Bold. It was recorded on Sunday morning, September 2nd, 2007. This message is titled, Surrender. You may be thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with the Bible? I haven't a clue what that thing's about. Well, this is real simple this morning. You just kind of open it up to the beginning. The very first of 66 books that are contained in that Bible is where we're headed. Genesis, Genesis, and then chapter 32, chapter 32. So easy to find. We're going to continue this morning our current teaching series uh, called Redirecting Your Future. We're talking about uh, out of the book of Genesis, which is... The book of beginnings, that's what the word Genesis means, beginnings. We're talking out of the book of Genesis about several um, events that took place that were not just about beginnings, but re-beginnings. Where futures were redirected, where people's lives were headed in a direction that they realized they didn't want to go and weren't the direction God wanted for them to go. And the Lord provided the means for them to exit that, um, that stream or that path and find their future redirected towards His uh, uh, destiny for their lives. Today we're going to be talking about the future rec- redirecting principle of surrender. Surrender. And I've asked you to turn to um, Genesis chapter 32, and we're going to start reading there and just kind of do a bit of Bible study, kind of just make our way through several verses. I'm not going to read them all, but we're going to be looking at a, uh, a, a group of verses that talk about an event in the, uh, actually a very familiar to many of us, event in the life of Jacob. And you're wondering, well, who's Jacob besides um, the youngest uh, of the uh, Eric and Flo Agadello family? Well, Jacob was one of the um, Hebrew patriarchs. There was Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were twins born, uh, you know, minutes apart. And Esau uh, was um, sort of uh, taken under the, the wing of his father. It was a very dysfunctional family. The father doted on, Jake, uh, uh, Isaac doted on, on Jacob, and Jacob became sort of a, you know, quote, quote, man's man and a hunter and, you know, an outdoorsman kind of guy. Um, that was Esau. I hope I said the right thing there. That was Esau. <laughs> Jacob was doted on by his mother and became a homebody. You know, he could cook and do all of the kinds of stuff that we would normally associate with, with sort of a, a mama's boy. And, uh, but... Jacob was also a real conniver. In fact, his name means supplanter. Um, supplanter, which means um, heel catcher. Heel catcher. So what does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that when Jacob and Esau were born, Esau was firstborn. He came out of the womb first. But it says that, that Jacob was reaching for his heel as though he was trying to Get, at, get first in line. It's the kind of person that, you know, when you're uh, waiting in line at Disneyland, tries to cut in front of you. That person, heel catcher, Jacob, that's, that's, that's what he was. And in fact, 
The Bible uh, tells us about how Jacob stole his brother Esau's, the most important things to his brother Esau that were his right as the firstborn. First, he stole his birthright, which has to do with material things um, that were uh, his as, as the firstborn. Jacob, I won't go into the whole story, but Jacob engineered this whole plot that ended up deceiving his brother and uh, uh, he stole Esau's birthright. He also engineered another um, <laughs> brilliant <laughs> episode where he stole uh, Esau's blessing. And that's something that, you know, uh, we, we don't know. We wouldn't be able to rate, relate to very well in, all, uh, in our culture, but... Um, it was very, very important. It had to do with spiritual things. The, the, uh, Esau's father passing on to uh, Esau at, at his father Isaac's death, the, a mantle, a blessing, a spiritual blessing. Jacob stole that as well. So, and then there's, you know, ongoing, we see that this is just the pattern of Jacob's life. He's a heel catcher. He's a cutter and liner. He's the guy who's trying to, you know, always shortcut everything and get, uh, you know, what he wants. But after Jacob has married and, uh, and begun to uh, develop his, uh, his own life, he's returning, he's been sojourning in, in the uh, land of his relatives, and he's returning to, to the land of his birth, to his homeland. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 132, chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the county or country of Eden. So Jacob knows that he's going to have to face his brother now. He's returning home, or he's going to have to face this one who, you know, he has swindled out of so much. And he sends some men to, uh, to take a message to, the, to, uh, to Esau. He commanded them, verse 4 says, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. So he sends these men to his brother Edan, excuse me, Esau, in the <coughs> excuse me, to, to say to him, yeah, I know I really jerked you over. <laughs> but, you know, it's cool. We're both adults now. I got my own stuff. You got your own stuff. I'm coming back. Can't we just all get along? Right? And so uh, he sends some men to tell Esau this. Now look at, uh, <laughs> look at verse 6. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, um, We came to your brother Esau and delivered the message you told us to deliver. Um, but he's coming to meet you. And uh, 400 men are coming with him. <laughs> so Jacob figures out that you know, he's, he's in trouble, right? So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And what he does is he divides the people that were with him. 
the flocks, herds, the camels, into two companies, verse 7 tells us. He takes all his stuff, all the people, the servants, his family, his children, his flocks, and he divides them into two groups, thinking, well, if Esau and his 400 men come and, uh, you know, capture one half of my stuff, maybe the other half will remain, you know. I'll at least have 50% of my, my stuff and my people. Verse 8. He said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob says, now he begins to pray. <laughs> then Jacob says, and now, by the way, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? you you'd pray. might not be, you know, well, it'd be very sincere, but it'd be quite kind of a one-way uh, conversation. The Lord says, uh, or Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. And he's reminding God like we always do. God, you're good. and You've promised all this stuff. Never mind that I was such an idiot. You, oh God, you know, you've done, you've promised all this stuff. You, you surely don't want these kind of bad things to happen to me. And then he does the other thing that we do. We get real humble and say, you know, I, yeah, yeah, I, I'm not worthy of anything from Oh, God. So that's what he says in verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Then verse 11 is really, really so much like us. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. It's very important. He's praying, deliver me. Deliver me. Um, so verse 13 says, So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau. So he f <laughs> there's no immediate change in the circumstances. So the conniving um, you know, guy that he is, he comes up with an alternate plan. I won't read it now, but the following verses describe how he took, you know, his flocks of camels and donkeys and oxen and stuff, and he grouped them together in, in little gifts and sent them on with a space, some interval between them, so that as his brother is coming, you know, with his 400 men to, to get uh, uh, Jacob, he will encounter the, a flock of donkeys and say, Whose are these? And they'll say, Well, this is a gift for you from Jacob. Oh. And then he'll carry on some more and he'll come across the flock or a herd of camels. And he'll say, well, whose are these? Well, this is a gift for you from your brother Jacob. And after several of these things, these events where he encounters these gifts, he's figuring that Esau will finally vent all of his anger. And by the time he actually gets to Jacob, you know, he'll be, he'll be in a better state of mind. This guy is very shrewd, very, very sharp. Um, verse 22, after all this is happening, um, verse 22, he arose that night and took his two wives, his two male servants, female servants, excuse me, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. That's a, a, a tributary or river or stream. He took them, set them over the brook, and he sent over uh, what he had. So he put all of his most precious people and things across the river, hoping that might provide even some more safety. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man, in my Bible, that word man is capitalized because this is a description of, of a pre 
incarnate, uh, or a pre, uh, yeah, a pre-incarnate uh, representation or appearance is a better word, appearance of God. This is God shows up. A man wrestled with him, with Jacob, until the breaking of day. Notice that it doesn't say Jacob wrestled with God, as we most often understand it. It says that God, or a man, wrestled with Jacob. Take note of that. We're going to come back to it. And they wrestle until dawn. Now, when he, God, saw that he, uh, God, did not prevail against him, Jacob. There's all these he's and him's. I'm trying to make sure you keep it straight. Who's who? He, God, touched the socket of his, Jacob's, hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So it says that God, as they're wrestling through the night, realizes he's not prevailing. He's not winning this, this, uh, this wrestling match. And so he touches Jacob's uh, hip and puts it out of joint. Um, and verse 20, uh, 26 says, He said, God said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, God said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Remember, supplanter, heel catcher, cutter and liner. That's my name. And he, God, said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Israel. That means God wrestler or prince with God is another way that it's, it's described. For you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed. You have struggled with God and you have come through is what that means. Then Jacob asked saying, tell me your name I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Now verse uh, 1 of chapter 33. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were four hundred men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, <laughs> Leah and her children behind, and Rachel, and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But... Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is not the encounter that Jacob envisioned. And you could say, oh, well, Jacob's uh, strategy of sending all these gifts beforehand paid off. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is a direct result of the wrestling match. So let's talk about that. When our past comes calling, you ever had your past show up on your doorstep? Something you've said or done? Someone who has said or done something to you? You know, the money that you mismanaged? The opportunity you didn't take? You know, that person in your history who wounded you so deeply? The forgiveness you didn't offer? The bitterness you still hold?
the relationship you exploited, the relationship that exploited you. Ever had your past come calling, knocking on the door? Jacob was facing his past. And when our past comes calling, the first thing we do is we pretend we are two people. Remember, Jacob divided his, his camp into two companies. Don't we do that? It's sort of a denial mechanism. We say, well, that was then, this is now. That's in the past. I don't have to worry about that. I'm not that person anymore. I'm this person. Don't we do that? All right, so I, guess, I guess it's just me. That's okay. But, but you know, we are not two people. As much as we'd like that to be the case, I am one person. And that stuff in my past, whether it's stuff I did or stuff that was done to me, is still me. That's me back there and here. It's me. I'm one person. As much as I'd like to distance myself from my past, as much as I wish that was another era, another age, a closed book, you know, frankly, it's not. It's still me. It's still me. The next thing we usually do is we cry out to God and we want Him to rescue us from the present consequences of our past. When our past comes calling, we desperately, we get a real burden to pray. And we desperately cry out to God, Deliver me from the circumstances. Deliver me from these debts I can't pay that are a result of stuff I did back there. Deliver me from the the pain and agony that I carry with me from the, the abuse back there. Deliver me. We pray, God, deliver me. Right? Deliver me is not the same as heal me, is it? Is it? No. It's not the same. What do you think God is more interested in? Huh? Yeah. God is more interested in healing than delivering. But what we want in those moments is we want a helicopter rescue. And <laughs> pull us out. I was watching The Guardian the other day. Ever see that movie? Blank Stairs. Well, it's, it's, trust me, it's a Kevin Costner movie. I'm not even saying it's all that good. It was just about that. Helicopters coming and rescuing people. Just pulling you out of, you know... Whatever trouble you're in, and that's what we want. That's the kind of God we want. Come get me, Lord. Yeah, I sailed into, yes, I sailed out into the storm, and my boat is sinking. And even though I knew the weather was going to be bad, I did it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I need your help. Come rescue me. Right? That's how we pray. But you know what? God doesn't often answer that prayer in the way that we like because of what I said. He is more interested about healing you. If he doesn't bring healing to your life, you're going to end up here again. Your past is going to come again and call. God is, is interested in healing you. The third thing that we do is we try to appease our past like Jacob did when he sent these gifts on and he's trying to wear Esau down, right? We try to make peace with our past, sort of wall it off, 
and, uh, you know, or in some other fashion, um, you know, uh, come to terms with it. Make peace with it. But that's not the same as being healed either. Just kind of walking along through the rest of your life, dragging the chain of that stuff in your past, that's not life. Not the life God intended for you anyway. You might be able to get by, but it's not the life God intended for you. But we do that. We do that. But when our past comes calling, what God really wants is to change us, to heal us, to free us. Not just so we can figure out a way to limp through life, but he wants to change us. To do that, sometimes God has to employ some... um, some serious stuff. And sometimes when God is after healing and changing us, he will pick a fight with us. Now, I know that's kind of not the way we want to think about God, but think of it this way. God is watching the ruination of your life the way the stuff in your past has been haunting you and diminishing his desires and his will for you. So much so that he steps in and he says, I'm not going to allow this to continue. If you choose to continue to let this stuff ruin you, you're going ha- to have to go through me. You're not going to be able to continue t- down this destructive path without a fight. And God positions himself face to face, nose to nose with Jacob out there in the middle of the night alone and says, Jacob, I don't want this life for you. You are headed towards a future that is not what I designed for you. It's not the destiny that I have for you. And I'm not going to let you keep moving down this path without you having to come fight me for it. You're going to have to prevail over me to get... And you know what happens? Jacob almost does. This wrestling match, this goes on all night. And God says, God says, he's, I'm not prevailing against him. I'm not winning this fight. Have you ever been in that struggle, in that, in that wrestling match with God? And you find yourself winning it? That's scary. But you can. You can prevail against God. But God's not going easy. He's not going to go quietly. He loves you too much. And so God touches Jacob's side and puts it out of hip. I mean, out of, he puts his hip out of joint. And as far as we know, Jacob uh, spent the rest of his life with a limp as a result of it. It was no small thing. Although the God who created all things could have made Jacob a puff of smoke like that. But what God was doing was making a point. Jacob, I love you so much. I'm not going to let this happen without a fight. 
And even if I have to bring to bear something of my power that breaks something in you, I'm going to do it. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, I would venture to say all of the time, when I find myself squaring off with my, or face to face with my past, and God is stepping in in those moments, and they're tough. Those are tough moments. It seems like everything is going wrong. And God is stepping in there and, and he says, he says I'm, I'm trying to heal you. I'm trying to change you. Won't you let me redirect your future? And we are struggling and fighting and we're saying, no, I like this. I want to be in control. I want to continue in this path. And God, we almost get past God. And then he'll cause us to face something that will break us. Our, our selfishness, our pride, or something gets broken in the process. And that's what happens to Jacob. And then God says, all right, <clears throat> even still, apparently, even still, apparently, Jacob is prevailing. And so God says, all right, let me go. Let me go. But then this remarkable thing happens. Something so totally out of character, so you know, unexpected from Jacob. And then he says, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now, at first glance, it kind of sounds like Jacob has the upper hand, right? No, I'm not going to let you go until you fix this for me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. But the word for bless there is this. It means to kneel. It means to kneel. The word in the Hebrew used as, or translated in English as bless means to kneel. In those moments, Jacob realizes that he really has no other option except to surrender to this God who loves him so much, to stop fighting for his own way, to stop trying to dictate the terms, of, the terms of his surrender, and simply to say, okay, I give it to you. Bless me. Don't leave me. I'm holding on to you. Don't leave me. It's a dramatic turning point. It's a dramatic turning point. And that's what I believe sets up um, what is uh, to come. So we talked about how when God, or when our past comes calling, God wants to change us, not so much the circumstances. He cares about the consequences, the circumstances, but he's more concerned about us. We talked about yeah, how he will fight us and that almost always something's going to get broken in that, in that process. But what happens is, when we surrender to God, our, um, we are transformed. We are transformed. The stuff that polluted our lives, the stuff that drives us. You know, I, I've told you this story before, and, and I'll, so pardon me, but it comes to my mind. I'm going to share with you just the briefest part of it, but... I grew up in a family that was fairly, well, dramatically dysfunctional. And as a result, I became very, um, I don't know, embarrassed by my family. And one of the things that was sort of the lightning rod of that for me was that we were always late to everything. 
And I, you know, I just remember so vividly, I must have been, I don't know, uh, maybe nine or ten years old, and showing up for baseball practice, you know, late again. Everybody's out on the field. I don't know how long it's been going, but I see it in my mind. Everybody's out there. They're doing their stuff. And then I get dropped off, and I come sauntering onto the field. And I remember, I remember making a vow in that moment. My, whoever it was, my mom or dad, whoever it was to drop me off in the cars, beginning to take off. And I remember in my mind thinking, when I have control, I will never be late. And that set my life, I made a decision there that set my life heading towards a future that one day I realized I don't want. I became a control freak. I became you know, anal, whatever you want to call it, and everything about my life had to be orderly. I had to have control. From that moment on, I began to pursue a course that one day led me to a point where I was a preacher, I was a minister, sitting in a classroom learning how to give a, a psychological evaluation test, and, and the guy who was leading the class had given us all copies of the test to take, and then he took some of our tests and used our responses to teach us how to use this assessment tool when we are dealing with, with, you know, regular folks, you know. And so one of the ones he chose to, to use as an you know, example to the class was mine. He starts reading over my, my, my results, and he says, who's Randy Bolt? And I raise my hand. I figure I'm, I'm, he's going to call me up there and, you know, tell me what a great guy I was and everything. So, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. All right. And then the guy... You know, his face gets very stern and firm. This is a teacher, you know, a, a professor and also a, a, psych, a psychologist. And he points a finger at me and he says, if you don't radically change your life, you are going to lose your family, you're going to lose your ministry and everything important to you. Just like that. Now, hey, I, uh, I'm not sure that's really me. Maybe that was some other guy, you know. I'm trying to crawl under the table and find a way of escape. But in that moment, I realized that's my future. That's where I'm headed. Dear God, I don't want to go there. And boy, the wrestling match that ensued after that with God was epic. <laughs> but something got broken in me. My pride for one. And I was transformed. Now, does that mean I'm perfect? By no means. Does that mean I still don't struggle with some of that stuff? By no means. But I am a different man today. Ask my wife. <laughs> of course, that's clever because she's not here to, to answer. So, but uh, <laughs> anyway, we get transformed when God gets a hold of us. And our past gets healed. We don't just get a, you know, a helicopter rescue. Our past gets healed so that when... Jacob faces his brother. It's not just, you know, let's get along. It's Esau gets a hold of his neck and kisses him. It's the poison is all gone. It no longer haunts him. From that day forward, his past will never be something of shame. It will never be something of pain. It will never haunt him again. Because when God does something, it gets done. And Jacob's future was redirected. 